X-ray. Today, P.T. Barnum and his circus started their first tour of the United States back in 1835. June 2nd, 1863, Harriet Tubman freed nearly 800 human beings. That's from Howard Zinn. And on June 2nd, 1919, anarchists simultaneously set off bombs in eight separate U.S. cities. Somehow, June 2nd feels like it has echoes. Today on the local Your Quick Six news headlines, and in a context of wrestling with structural change, a focused conversation with Representative Andrea Salinas on campaign finance and money in politics, and an interview with Christian Ettinger, founder and brewmaster of Hopworks. This was an interview we had prepared for Monday and given way for Nikenge Harmon Johnson and Joanne Hardesty. It might feel oh so a few days ago, lest we forget COVID-19 is still a thing. First up, today's Quick Six Local Rundown. Governor Kate Brown has deployed the National Guard to Portland. An 8 p.m. curfew was put in place Saturday and Sunday. It did not keep protesters from turning out. He extended that curfew to Monday night. At a press conference on Monday morning, Mayor Ted Wheeler said he requested that Governor Brown call in the Oregon National Guard to help control the protests. Wheeler said he had made the request multiple times. Kate Brown threw some shade and offered assistance from the state police. On Monday, though, Governor Brown agreed to deploy 50 National Guard members, quote, to provide a support function only, end quote. She also said she would send in 100 Oregon State Police troopers. City Commissioner Joanne Hardesty originally opposed the deployment of the National Guard. However, she changed her mind after learning that some Portland police officers had been on duty for three days straight. Governor Brown's decision followed a call between President Trump and several state governors Monday morning. During that call, Trump urged governors to use the National Guard to quell protests. He referred to the protesters as terrorists, called for retribution, said they needed to dominate the streets. However, Governor Brown made clear that although she is calling in the National Guard, she does not share Trump's intentions. She wants to, and I'm quoting, ensure that the public can safely raise their voices in this much-needed call for reform, end quote. Marchers took to the streets by the thousands for the fourth consecutive night last night, Monday night, but as tear gas flew in Washington, D.C. to clear a crowd for the president, as there was gunfire in St. Louis, as a New York state senator said he was tear gassed and pepper sprayed, and as CNN was reporting that white supremacists were posing as Antifa and calling for violence. In Portland, as of midnight, our city enjoyed an evening of peace. More than a thousand protesters of police violence crossed the Burnside Bridge into downtown, defying the citywide curfew. But the Portland police allowed them to pass, and the marchers did not try to cross the fence cordoning off 16 blocks around the courthouses. And the march ended at Pioneer Square in what the Willamette Week called a summer block party, the kind we haven't been having much of during COVID-19. Remember, COVID-19, still a thing. And meanwhile, Governor Jay Inslee in Washington had ordered statewide National Guard activation. He had previously authorized 400 troops for Seattle and 200 troops for Bellevue. This activation means more troops will be used to help control unrest and protests. And here's the Inslee quote. We must not let these illegal and dangerous actions detract from the anger so many feel, the deep injustice laid so ugly and bare by the death of George Floyd. But we will also not turn away from our responsibility to protect the residents of our state. Meanwhile, there are multiple organizations in Portland fighting systemic racism. Many are running on shoestring budgets. You can support groups like the Portland NAACP, the Urban League of Portland Kairos PDX, the Black Lives Matter Portland Chapter, Generational Resistance PDX, and Don't Shoot. Portland. You can also donate to the GoFundMe for the PDX protest bail fund. It covers the bail and other expenses for protesters. You can volunteer, you can donate, you can become a sustaining member. You can do it out loud, you can do it online, and you can follow up. And if you do go out, make sure to be prepared for safe protesting. 
Your daily dose of data, Oregon's death toll from COVID-19 stands at 153. 59 new reported cases, total cases reported 4302. Most recent available data from Washington, 21,702 and 1,118 related deaths. And Monday did begin a new chapter in Washington's response to the COVID-19 crisis. For the first time in more than two months, the state is no longer under a blanket stay-at-home order. While that order is lifted, restrictions on daily life are not. Gatherings and non-essential travel are still limited. Also, starting June 8th, Governor Inslee will require people to wear masks at work if they're not alone. Businesses must also strongly encourage customers to use masks. Inslee also unveiled a new set of targets that should make it easier for some of the dozen or so counties still stuck in Phase 1 to advance to Phase 2. Even as Oregon reopens, it continues to shed jobs. Businesses all over Oregon are operating again. Every jurisdiction other than Multnomah County now has state permission to reopen, yet jobless claims are still rising. The state fielded more than 17,000 new claims in the week ending May 23rd, according to latest data. That is the highest total since the beginning of the month, three and a half times the average rate in the weeks before the outbreak. The state was recording nearly 90,000 claims a week at the end of March. So suffice it to say, things are better, just not good. The number of new claims rose 13% the week ending May 16th, another 10% the following week. The jobless rate was 14.2% in April. According to analysts with the State Employment Department, many new job losses might be brief. Educational service jobs represented 20% of the latest new claims, up from 2 or 3% earlier in the outbreak. That could indicate a bunch of unemployment claims are from school districts. Portland, Beaverton, and Hillsborough are furloughing workers for one day a week through the rest of the year. And some financial assistance for Oregon's undocumented workers is coming soon. In March, a group of immigrant and farm worker advocacy groups created the Oregon Worker Relief Fund. The fund is designed to give temporary financial relief to undocumented workers who don't qualify for unemployment benefits. So far, the fund has raised nearly $1.5 million from organizations like the Oregon Community Foundation and the Oregon Food Bank. City of Portland kicked in a quarter million dollars. In April, state lawmakers infused the fund with $10 million. Now the organizations behind the fund say it's ready for a statewide launch early this month. They've dispersed $750,000 to thousands of families so far. The fund started accepting applications in a soft launch on May 8th, distributing its first round of aid last week. While Facebook workers staged a virtual walkout over Mark Zuckerberg's inaction on Donald Trump's posts, Facebook has joined Twitter in taking steps to stop misinformation from spreading about Oregon's election system. The moves follow Secretary of State Bev Clarno alerting the social media companies to what she said were falsehoods being shared on those platforms. A Facebook group called My Party Was Changed Oregon and the Oregon Republican Party launched an effort to gather firsthand accounts from voters who said their party affiliation was changed without their consent. Starting in April, some voters claiming to be lifelong Democrats said they were upset to relieve nonpartisan ballots. Well, it turned out that most of them were infrequent voters, registered as nonpartisan for a number of years, and public records also showed those same people had not voted in recent primaries. Then, on May 18th, the Gateway Pundit published an unverified claim that Oregon officials changed hundreds of Republican ballots to nonpartisan. And let's make something clear. Facebook has said Gateway Pundit, I'm quoting, is known for publishing falsehoods and spreading hoaxes, end quote. So Klarna's administration, she's a Republican, by the way, contacted the social media companies. Facebook tagged the post as partly false and began referring people to fact checks on the story. Twitter suspended the My Party Changed account on May 22nd. 
Some background. Oregon is one of nine states with closed primaries. That means voters must register with a party to participate in that party's primary. Since the state's automatic voter registration law took effect in 2016, the number of unaffiliated voters has grown a bunch. That's because people who are not previously registered are automatically signed up as non-affiliated. This happens when you get or renew your driver's license or your state ID card. Elections officials then send out postcards asking those same voters if they want to pick a party. All voters see the nominees from both major parties during the November general election, which can make it pretty easy for those who don't vote in the primary to think they're registered to the party they identified with. Several Oregon State Park campgrounds have begun reopening. The Oregon Parks and Recreation Department reopened seven first-come, first-served campgrounds in eastern Oregon. The department expects to add dozens more throughout the state, including popular areas like the coast, the Clumber River Gorge. Keep in mind, the parks that do open will have limited services. And the Multnomah County Library will begin offering no-contact sidewalk service at select locations on June 8th. The library also has plans to start offering limited in-person computer service when the county enters phase one of reopening. A lot of people in our community rely on the library for the Internet. The downtown Central Library and its 18 neighborhood branches have been closed since March 13th. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Here's Emily Gilliland on What's Next. First up, a conversation from James Offsink, board chair of PDX Forward with Representative Andrea Salinas. PDX Forward is a self-described intergenerational learning hub for the political process. This conversation focuses on why Oregon elections are so expensive and how that might be changing. Here's James with more. This is James Offsink, and over my years watching politics locally and nationally, One issue that has come up over and over again as an impediment to progressive change is the insidious role of money in politics. On issues as diverse as universal health care, meaningful gun safety, making corporations contribute their fair share to our communities, and necessary environmental protections, whatever the issue is, big money weighs heavily against the interests of everyday people. Through a combination of campaign contributions, high-priced lobbyists, and other ways of purchasing power, special interests have seen the private benefits of using their resources to shape public policy. And there are few places where that is as true as it is in Oregon, where a number of factors contribute to our elections being some of the most expensive in the country. Running a winning campaign in a contested seat in the Oregon legislature can easily cost a million dollars. Historically, the Oregon legislature has been unwilling to make substantive improvements to the same systems that elected them. But all of that might be about to change. It looks like there are fledgling efforts underway in Salem to make some real reforms to get big money out of Oregon elections. I had the opportunity to sit down with one of the leaders making it happen. For those who don't know me, I'm State Representative Andrea Salinas. I represent House District 38, which is Southwest Portland and Lake Oswego. Can you tell me how this issue first got on your radar? Yesterday, I told a group of um, young, diverse women um, about my first foray into politics. And I started thinking about kind of my remarks for tonight. I worked as an intern my last year of college for Senator Dianne Feinstein in her San Francisco district office. It was 1994. And that year, she ran against Michael Huffington. Combined, the campaigns spent upwards of $44 million for a statewide race. At the time, it was the most expensive race in the nation outside of a presidential race. 
And while I liked Senator Feinstein well enough, you know, she was a woman, she, you know, not a lot of women had been mayor and city commissioner in San Francisco. Um, and I followed her career a little bit through high school and college. This particular race made me question my ability to ever really help influence the policies made in my state, much less our nation. I didn't have the kind of money that was pouring into these races. Hell, I could barely afford to pay for parking in downtown San Francisco for the six hours I worked in her district office each week. So fast forward 26 years and one state north, and now I'm serving in Oregon's legislature thinking about the same thing. For those who don't know me, I have a background in advocacy and I was essentially a lobbyist. And so I would be one of those people who would give money. And even as a lobbyist though, I didn't have kind of the big um, clients who would make sure that I could attend all these fundraisers. So I was kind of the $100, $250 kind of contributor. But now that I am where I am, I'm asking how can, anyone pay for their college tuition and expect to participate in elections in a really meaningful way? How does anyone know that their voices will be heard and not drowned out by big money in politics? And how can I, now that I'm here with a clean conscience, continue to contribute to this dysfunction when I know that it doesn't serve our democracy and it really doesn't serve the people of Oregon and those who I believe I'm representing? Why is now the moment for making these historic changes? So now we have um, Oregon's Supreme Court ruling coming out on campaign finance limits, and it's coming out in the midst of a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic where people are losing their jobs and businesses, losing access to education. We know folks don't have broadband. They may not have the technology. And some, honestly, are losing their lives. So if this isn't the perfect storm to really put Oregon's campaign um, finance structure into perspective and to really allow people to demand change for fair and accountable campaign finance, finance limits in Oregon, then I don't think we'll ever be able to say no to big money. And I can tell you it is hard to fundraise right now. So I think that legislators really are going to be looking at this in a different way. I chair the House Healthcare Committee, and um, you know who really doesn't have time or money to dish out right now? Healthcare lobbyists. And I'm okay with that. They're just trying to make sure that their clients are on track to continue serving patients around the state and just getting through the pandemic. What are some of the components you see as making a big difference in reining in money in politics? I think we need to make sure that we have real limits. We need to set hard caps on what wealthy individuals and corporations can contribute. I want that. So when I think about it, like, what does this look like? Who am I really trying to address? I want that young farm worker from Woodburn to know that she doesn't need to know a bunch of wealthy people when she thinks about potentially running for state office. I want her to believe that one day she can reach out and ask for 10, 20, 50 bucks from her community members and with enough contributors, it will allow her to play in a space that she never could have dreamed of. So I think we need to make sure that everyone has a voice. And that means that also um, folks that give through their union dues. I want to allow small donor political action committees. But again, there needs to be a limit on what those individuals can give. Individuals can contribute to, say, United Food and Commercial Workers in the same way that they can contribute to the Oregon Firearms Federation and each pack will play by the same rules. There'll need to be limits on the, the contributions of those individuals contributing to those small donor packs. 
So that young college student working at Fred Meyer will have a voice through his union small donor pack in the same way that the Oregon um, hunter will through their firearms pack. This has to not only look real, but it has to be real. I'm tired of hearing, and I know Oregon voters and people who watch this are tired of hearing, but we need to address the loopholes. Whenever someone talks about campaign finance reform, we hear that, right? That's the kind of fall, the, the, last, the last sentence. The loopholes are the problem. I would never ask anyone to join me on this journey to embark on a real fight for campaign finance reform in name only. I wouldn't waste your time and I certainly want, wouldn't want to waste my time. Um, and I'm as done as every other Oregonian in saying that we need real change. But a small tweak here or a compromise there doesn't really get us to what we're, we're looking for. What I'm looking for is trying to figure out how we can expect to see people of color, marginalized communities, low income, low income communities and others represented in elected positions in a transparent, honest, and accountable type of campaign finance system and races. And I think it's incumbent upon all of us to make sure that we're making the space for Oregon's future leaders to look like and represent their communities. Um, we need these voices and we need these ideas if Oregon hopes to be the democracy we know we can be. We can't expect to change the rules of the game until we see different people setting up those chess pieces. We do need to start that work now, and we need to have um, everyone on this call really kind of reaching out and letting their legislators know that despite what may happen in the fall at the federal level, Oregon needs to work on this in 2021, and that um, you want your legislator to be a champion on this. Um, it, it really does. I mean, I do think in a very big and profound way, our democracy depends on this. Thank you, Representative Salinas, for taking time out to speak with us and to share your vision for a stronger democracy in Oregon. Democracy thrives when community members with all sorts of lived experience can meaningfully participate and have their voices heard. And we appreciate you and your colleagues who are working to make that a reality in Oregon. We will look forward to following up with you on this as things progress in Salem. This is James Offsink for X-Ray. Next up is an interview with Kristen Edinger, co-founder and brewmaster from Hopworks. As Multnomah County sets their sights on reopening, what will it look like for restaurants and bars? Can they reopen? Jefferson Smith and Christian look back at the last few months and look to the future. When Christian Edinger founded Hopworks Urban Brewer in 2008, he wanted to fuse his passion for beer with his passion for sustainable plant and his love of bicycles for the last 12 years. He's worked to build this brewery. The beer industry ebbs and flows, getting harder to stand out in a saturated market. But now the shutdown is taking a toll on businesses, especially food and beverage. Christian, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Justin. Julia, I appreciate it very much. And Julia, turn on the mic. Why don't you join in on this conversation? Christian, let's start out. How are you, how are you doing? How is your family doing? How's Hopworks doing? God, man, it, what a crazy time! Yeah, we're we're doing great. Thanks for asking. Yeah, we're um, you know, the business is, is uh, in survival mode, but but uh, found some some hope and in, in a little bit of takeout and delivery of beer, and the family's really good. My 14 year old son and I have been we've been mountain biking a lot and just trying to stay outside, stay healthy, and, and they're uh, doing online school, so they're staying busy, not driving us too crazy. 
And so what's the, give people the landscape of, uh, of Hopworks now. I remember when it was a place, but you've, ex- you expanded before all this was dealing with. So what's the, what's the totality of the operation that you're trying to manage at this point? Yeah. I mean, we, we, we entered COVID with, you know, 135 wonderful coworkers and, uh, three of our own pubs, uh, around, you know, Oregon and, and Southwest Washington and a really good wholesale network as well. And, you know, distributing the beer up and down the West coast and kind of quickly collapsed it. Uh, and that was Monday. And then Tuesday of COVID we collapsed the whole thing into a seven foot countertop in the basement of the brewery selling beer, uh, direct to, uh, our customers over the dock and then continuing to wholesale beer to, to our distributors. So, uh, had to lay off oh god so many people it's just the saddest part for me was you know partying with everybody on a temporary basis and and uh now we're you know in the process looking looking now with the news yesterday that we might have june 12th as a a start point you know to to to, uh rebirth you know out of those 135 people how many did you have to let go and how many or or if it's an easier number how many people were you able to keep having work well, there were about six. There were about six weeks there where I was the only full-time employee. If you can imagine that, uh, it reminded me of the early days. You know, walking around there in an empty warehouse with my dad and a nail belt and trying to figure out what to do. You know, uh, and now we've got a wonderful admin team that we ramped down, but we're ramping back up this next week. And uh, well, we have seven full-time brewers uh, that we've maintained at part to full-time throughout that period. But I guess right now, if you said full-time employees. You got me and and the seven seven brewers, right? So eight of us full time. So are you getting your hands dirty then, Christian? Are you back down in the brew on the brew tower making beer? Yeah, you remember in the, those days, Julia. Julia and I worked together for for several years at, at Hub, and and she awesome job, and uh, really kind of miss you, Julia. Those, those were fun days, but uh, yeah, I'm definitely I got nail belt on. I filled a ten yard drop box full of concrete when we busted the vault out the other day, and just you know, I think I I really enjoy you know. I really enjoy the entrepreneurial side, developing concept uh, and the marketing and certainly construction with my family history with that. So I go to my comfort zone, put the nail belt on and get dirty. I drive, drove the delivery truck uh, going. I'm going to drive it up to Vancouver here on Friday to do a pop up. And so, yeah, I, I love I love getting getting in the mix. I'm definitely a better, better worker than I am a manager. You know, did you apply for and or did you get a PPP loan? Yeah, the PPP, we, it's sitting in an account right now. You know, there's this weird tension between restaurants and the PPP where it was kind of a, a knee-jerk reaction. Money was deployed before the rules, and the rules didn't track to our, the needs of our industry. So the whole hospitality uh, industry is really awaiting uh, the adaptation of the PPP rules to meet our needs, i.e., if if you know the clock's ticking right now, I've got two more weeks to deploy this money, but I am on a government mandate to be shut down. So, how do I deploy the money without having 135 people um, doing deep cleaning and spanning? So it By seems the wayside, like wait, waiting for customers that aren't allowed to come in yet. You know. So it seems like there's three choices that I can think of. One is you just pay people to I don't know work not work from home because you're not going to be making beer from home uh and, or or serving people another option is just to send the money back in two weeks or the third is some kind of change what kind of change do you think might happen and if that change doesn't happen are you just sending the money back or is there something else you can do with it 
There's a strong likelihood I would send the money back if the change doesn't happen. Uh, you know, that's too much money, and anybody who looks at finance knows that the interest rate is meaningless. It's the term, the length of the loan, that really becomes the the, the tool to to uh, be successful. The, sh- the term is way too short. Those payments that I would have would be an additional $30,000 a month instantly if it diverted to a loan. So the changes that need to take place are that the timeline needs to be relevant to you know the state in which you operate and the industry. So if the clock could start ticking when uh, the mandate, the closure is lifted, that's reasonable. If the term could be extended beyond uh, you know two years, 1% sounds great until you go do the, pay- the, the payment calculator and realize that you can't, no small business can just handle a two-year term on a, on a big balance. It just doesn't work, uh, especially on an operational basis. You know, loans for operation are, are not really good loans to take on because you're essentially, it's hard to make, make that up in the future. You know, restaurants are typically a little lower margin, and so it's just tough. So, yeah, the, change the rules. Change the timing, change the terms, and don't be afraid to customize it to the hospitality industry, which has, you know, been hit. Uh, harder than a lot of industries by the COVID crisis. Uh, Julia, what else you want to ask? Well, I want to talk about, um, you know, Hopworks does a lot of work to be sustainable, to work uh, their B Corporation. You're a B Corporation, which um, means you got to give 1% for the planet. You've got to agree to do more for your employees than the state mandates. Um, how is how is How are you feeling that juxtaposition right now of having to lay off all your workers, trying to be sustainable, trying to help the planet, trying to help your community in your town. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's been some uh, great silver lining and, you know, in that our our customers have been so generous. Um, when we proposed to uh, sell beer uh, as a fundraiser for uh, Central City Concern to basically get them free masks, which is the most basic and, and uh, useful tool to prevent the spread of COVID, uh, we were able, our, our customers were so generous that in a two-week period, we were able to sell 300 cases of a fundraiser beer. We called it the, um, oh, we, we had so many working names, I'm trying to remember, uh, uh, that uh, we were able to, to, to generate enough money to make 400 masks for Central City Concern. Uh, and you know, marginalized folks that wouldn't be able to afford them otherwise. So, and these are nice, high-quality masks made from Loopworks re- reclaimed material. These guys are an amazing B Corp that takes drops off of big garment projects from Nike and all this other stuff to to upcycle them and make uh, great uh, great gear and clothing and, and accessories and stuff like that. So they're making masks, and we're going to buy those masks as well and use them for our our employees. Are going to get them when they come back to work in a couple weeks, but. Yeah, being able to turn as a B Corp, always looking through the, the the mud of the situation, the difficulty, and trying to use beer and business as a force for good. Like that's that's our knee jerk reaction. Is like, okay, the music stopped. How can we um, keep uh, doing what we do to to the best of our ability and and continue to to give back in some way, even in this crisis? For you, the biggest risk now 
as I see businesses, you know, uh, Geneva's sheer perfection, uh, who else did I just see shut down, uh, announced that they were shutting down for good. At this point, a lot of your thinking has been, okay, how do I make sure that uh, that Hub, that Hotworks Urban Brewery is around for a long, long, long time? How do we get through this? What's the biggest risk for you? It seems to me that the reason, and you can disabuse me of this, that the reason that folks have to go out of business for good is because they end up not being able to pay their rent. They lose their lease and they know they're never going to make it up. Is that a risk for you? What's the biggest risk for you? Do you own your buildings? Yeah, let's see. We've got our three operations. You know, uh, we have two leases and we own the building at at Powell. We were able to, with the SBA, uh, buy our building uh, at Powell, my wife and I, about a year and a half ago. So that's, you know, that's our our base camp, our, you know, our our mothership, we call it. And um, yeah, so we, we experienced both sides of it where we've got these bills coming in right now with the leases and we got deferments in some cases but the deferments might only be interest uh, or might only be the principal but the interest is still sizable up front so yeah the biggest risk to us is this um, accumulation of debt without the associated cash flow to to retire that so you're essentially getting however long COVID lasts three months we're getting three months behind and the low margins of the restaurant space are are such that it's hard to um, you know, make piles of money anyway. So the farther you get behind, the, the the less you see this, the hope kind of sink over time. The longer this goes, the harder it is to restart and the more people will close because they just see that the debt is accumulating and and the likelihood of paying it back is, is decreasing every day. So what's the square footage? And you don't share any more than you want to, but I could do. What's no, this? Fine. What's the square footage of your places, and what what kind of rent is it? You know, buck fifty a square foot. What's the kind of rent bill that accumulates each month for an operation like this? Because that might help people understand. You know, for other businesses as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I go to you know my annualized like rent per square foot. And, you know, our Powell site is an acre and a half, and you know, twenty three thousand feet of building. So, you know, but uh, you know, you have to you have to buy right and you have to lease right. So if you get the restaurant industry kind of begins to struggle when the lease rates are over 20 bucks a foot. And certainly if you're in a popular area where the people are at, you know, you might see 25 or 30 bucks a foot. And that's per and year, 20 bucks. Per, yeah. Per yeah. foot per year. Yeah. So that you can see that plus you add the cams, which are maintenance and insurance and taxes and all that stuff. Uh, that, that number can be quite high and uh, it's, it can be, you can be on the razor's edge as a, as a restaurant constantly and you'll see that who pulls the ripcord quickly is you know people who really get how important it is to be <laughs> to be open McMinimins had some neat solutions when when this all happened i don't they're really smart and i'm curious to see you know how they emerge from this with their empire and even the small guys uh you just see you see people reading the tea leaves and going there may have been too many restaurants out there in the first place uh so in some cases, you know, it's the market writing itself. Uh, certainly, we've seen a lot of competition in the, in the brewery space uh, in the last three, four years for that shelf space, for the for those dollars that are out there. So there's this greater macroeconomic market corrections. But yeah, the leases are um, are can be big. I try not to get anything over 20 bucks a foot. But there's always these escalations after your five-year term. Everybody tries to bring it to market, and oftentimes in those five-year terms, the building will change hands. And you got a new uh, person who paid, overpaid for the building who is trying to capture that, right? So they're going to rent correct. So it's not so much where you're at right now. It's where you're at when the lease comes up. And you'll see the closures are kind of timed with lease, uh, 
renegotiations. And if they can't get what they need out of the lease renegotiation, they're out of there because they know that they can't they can't beat it. You know. Yeah, and if they've they got it, the if, and if you got a big place, you got ten thousand square feet. You know, it, even at even at a buck fifty a foot a month, right? Which pretty closely tracks your you know twenty to thirty. Uh, mm-hmm. Then then that's uh, I I should be able to do that math in my head. I mean that's what fifteen thousand. <laughs> that's like fifteen thousand dollars a month in rent, and that doesn't seem unrealistic for a lot of these places. Yeah, no, the numbers can be astronomical, and you know you can't you shouldn't exceed eight percent of your overall sales with uh, with either a lease or a mortgage and. You see people getting up to 10%. Well, if restaurants are only making, you know, the best restaurants in the world, the chains are making 6% on the bottom line, right? So if you lose two, three more points off your lease because you just were too eager to get into this place, just had to have it, but didn't really understand and thought maybe your sales would be 10% higher than they were, it's really easy to be breaking even or losing money every month. So it's just you're kind of on the razor's edge, and the, this low margin space is hard to negotiate, and it just... It, it sucks sometimes to live and die by the spreadsheet, but but you really have to be shrewd, you know. Well, Al, I just want to say thank you so much. Christian Edinger is the uh, is the founder of uh, Hopworks Urban Brewery, and and I can say this: there is no there is no financial relationship involved. I've been for so many years inspired by the work that you and Brandy have done, by the example you set for the local business community, for the local community in general. So grateful you spending this time, and for just how you have been operating in the world for the last over a decade. Well, we very much appreciate what you guys do, and thanks for. Thanks for uh, taking the time to talk with us. It's, uh, it's been an honor, and hopefully we'll have a pint here on our back deck with proper distancing very soon. Thanks to James. Thanks to Representative Salinas and to Christian for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, and thank you for standing up for democracy. If you have story ideas, if you have organizations who need support and shouts out, please do send an email at thelocal@xray.fm. We must be together while we are apart, and thank you, democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.